Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to see you this morning. Help us, Lord Jesus, to hear your voice. And come upon us, Holy Spirit, I pray, and teach us. Amen. It's now 16 days since the ball dropped in Times Square, New York, where hundreds of thousands of jubilant folks hooped and hollered and kissed their way into 2011. So, two weeks on, I wonder, how's the new year going? I guess the answer to that question depends who you ask. Pretty well for the Steelers, just. And uh, this new year is also very exciting uh, for those in our midst who've recently found out that they're pregnant, but I'm sworn to secrecy on that, so sorry. And I'm sure there are many joys and triumphs and things to give thanks to God for already this new year. But while revelers enjoyed Times Square a couple of weeks ago, 21 worshippers attending a New Year's Eve service at a Coptic church in Alexandria in Egypt were brutally murdered. And this past week marked the one-year anniversary of the catastrophic earthquake in Haiti. Queensland, Australia, is in the grip of flooding described by the media as being of biblical proportions. An area the size of Texas, swamped. Sri Lanka, Brazil, South Africa, likewise, battling fatal flooding. And over these past few days, just this week, we've witnessed turmoil in Tunisia with rioting and looting on the streets and the president fleeing the country. I hope you will keep the Bernardi family especially in your prayers at this time. In our psalm today, the psalmist's reference to having been in a desolate pit in the mire and clay surely rings true for countless souls around the world this morning. And not just in areas devastated by war or flood or famine or earthquake, but in every home and every heart where there is hopelessness, grief, pain, sickness, despair, or loneliness. Psalm 40 began, I waited patiently for the Lord. He stooped and heard my cry. And the psalmist, of course, has cause to be happy, for he has been delivered, he has been rescued, and he has a new song in his mouth. But what about before deliverance comes, before justice is granted, before suffering comes to an end? How then, in the midst of turmoil, are we to wait? Though we might say, I just can't wait any longer, the truth is, oftentimes, we don't get to have a choice about how long we may have to wait. The only choice we have concerns how we will wait. We can either simply wait it out in frustration and anger, or we can wait 
on the Lord. But we should note something else from Psalm 40. The writer doesn't just speak of waiting on the Lord. He speaks of waiting patiently. I have to confess to you that I think if I ever write a psalm about waiting, it might have to be about waiting impatiently. And yet, despite our patience or impatience, this psalm reminds us that God does hear our cries for deliverance. And the trust that we are to have is not in the timing of when God will rescue us, or even as to the specific outcomes of our cries for help, but rather in the one in whom we put our trust. For it is God who made us, who knows us and loves us. The promise of salvation is a theme that runs not just through the psalm, but is also in our reading from Isaiah. The prophet is looking ahead to the day when the Redeemer, the Rescuer of Israel, will come and bring rescue not just for the people of Israel, but for the world. I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The day is coming. The day is coming when every knee will bow before Jesus Christ as Lord. Well, it was against this backdrop of waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled and in a land torn by brutal oppression that John the Baptist sees Jesus coming towards him. And last week we were thinking about the baptism of Jesus. And here John refers back to that and the sign of the Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus, confirming who he was, the Son of God. Here we encounter John no longer as we did in Advent, screaming, you brood of vipers, like some maniac in the desert, but rather now, face to face with Jesus. And he says... Here is the Lamb of God. If ever a phrase was pregnant with meaning, this is surely one of them. What was John thinking as he said that? What did he mean when he called Jesus the Lamb of God? I want to suggest to you four possible ways that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And first, we need to go back to God's rescue plan for his people when they were slaves in Egypt. You remember God called Moses to bring them out of Egypt. And you may remember that that culminated in God sending ten plagues. As time after time, Pharaoh, with his hard heart, refused to let God's people go. And the final plague was upon the firstborn children and the firstborn of all the cattle in all of Egypt. The only way that God's people could be saved was to sacrifice a lamb and smear the blood of that lamb around the doorposts of their home. And that was to be the sign to the angel of death as that angel passed over those houses that had the sign of the blood on their doorposts, the people were saved. Hence why that is still remembered today as the Passover. 
Just as the blood of the Passover lamb delivered the Israelites in Egypt from death, so in Jesus, his blood delivers all who turn to him from eternal death. The second way that Jesus is the lamb that may have been in John's mind related to the daily sacrifices that were offered in the temple in the morning and in the evening. You remember John's father was who? Zachariah. Zachariah was a priest. John would have been very familiar with these daily sacrifices. And these daily sacrifices echoed what happened when Abraham was told by God to take his son Isaac and offer him. And you remember in that dreadful story in so many ways, and the boy is saying, but dad, where's the lamb? Where's the offering? And Abraham says, don't worry, the Lord will provide. And off they go up the mountain. And indeed, the Lord did provide. There in a thicket is a ram caught. The Lord provided the sacrifice in place of Isaac. And so just as God himself provided a lamb then, so in Jesus he provides the lamb who is to be slain once and for all for the sins of the world. Thirdly, a look at the Old Testament prophets reveals that well, if we look at Isaiah, for example, he had spoken of the one to come who would be led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as the Israelites waited for God's salvation, they set their hope on the one who by his sufferings and sacrifice would save his people. And this, of course, is exactly what Jesus came to do. Behold the Lamb of God. Fourthly, And this is a picture that we are maybe less familiar with. At that time, the lamb was the symbol of a great conqueror. In the recent history of the Jews of John's day, that is to say about 200 years before, there had been a great conqueror in the form of Judas Maccabeus, who had led a Jewish revolt. And his symbol, does anybody know what it was? Hearing none, the symbol for Judas Maccabeus was a horned lamb. Now, I don't know whether John had that in mind or not, but it's interesting. Certainly, Jesus is the great king who, though he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, by his death and resurrection, he utterly conquered and triumphed and smashed to pieces the power of Satan and hell and death. It's hard to know just what the crowds made of all this. But the first would-be disciples see what's going on. They see this encounter, and they are curious. What's the meaning of this? They probably ask themselves. And wanting to find out more, they, they follow on behind Jesus. They follow him. And soon Jesus turns and sees them. And then he asks them, these two, what are you looking for? What an understated and profound question that was. But it's a question I think worth asking ourselves this morning. What are you looking for? Now, we can answer that at so many levels. 
to the person whose home and livelihood has been swept away in the floodwaters, they may be looking for their most basic physical needs to be met. For the person living in fear of rioters and looters, they may be looking for safety and security. But whatever your circumstances, whether you're rejoicing greatly or waiting patiently or impatiently, what are you looking for in the year ahead? A job? A better job? More money? A relationship? Healing? Answers? Well, let's take a look at how these two disciples of John responded. Rather oddly, I have to say, You know, I smile every time I read this. Here's Jesus, the Son of God, standing right in front of them, asking them what they're looking for. And what do they say? Uh, Where are you staying? What a bizarre thing to say. That's like saying, oh, nothing, we're just, you know, wandering up the road here. Fancy seeing you. Except, of course, there's much more to it than that. They're not ultimately interested in seeing where Jesus is staying, except insofar as it means they can spend more time with him and they can learn from him and be with him. Now, they know that. Jesus knows that. And I dare say Jesus knew a whole lot more besides. I think he knew, he knew what was in their hearts. He knew their longings. He knew their joys and their fears. I think he saw in those two young men all the potential that they had to be his followers. And so Jesus invites them, come and see. And so began a most remarkable journey for these two. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, and another disciple, very likely John, the author of this gospel, These two, Andrew, maybe John, follow Jesus. Little did they know what that would lead to. This was not about having some intellectual curiosity satisfied. This was about hearing and responding to the call of Jesus to follow him, to serve him, and to tell the world about him. The call to Jesus, then and now, to follow him, is a call that is full of hope, full of forgiveness, full of salvation. And with it comes a call to share this good news with others. From Haiti to Tunisia, at the university, at the hospital, at home, at school, with your neighbor, we are to extend the invitation to those around us to come and see. This is something that you and I can do. We can say, come and see what Jesus has done in my life. Come and see what meaning, what purpose, what comfort I have found in following Jesus. And our gospel reading this morning ought to be a great encouragement to any who feel timid about sharing your faith with someone who's not a believer. You see, you don't have to be able to explain the entire Christian faith in your first conversation. You don't have to ask someone, are you saved? You don't have to tell them in four easy steps what they need to know to become a Christian. Frankly, I wouldn't recommend that approach. Because in all likelihood, most people will think you're a complete crackpot. No, but what you can do is say, come and see. 
And at the end of the day, I think that's one of the best things that we can do. There's a time and a place for all the explanations and the conversations, of course. But no matter how many discussions you may have, how many books you may recommend, how many church services you bring people to, each one has to come and see for himself or herself. We cannot argue anyone into the kingdom of God. In the last analysis, we can only say to someone, come and see, or perhaps try it and see what happens. In faith that if a person does come, does try it, then they will find for themselves the truth of what we believe. It is certainly our job to bring others to Jesus. What they do when they encounter him is between them and him. Well, Andrew, the first disciple, immediately went and found his brother, Simon. First he told him about Jesus, and then he brought him to Jesus. And you and I can do the same. It might mean bringing someone to church. It might mean taking someone with you to hear a speaker. But more than that, at the end of the day, it means bringing someone, introducing someone to Jesus. Being called to be a follower, a disciple, a learner of Jesus is a call to a lifelong process of following him, of learning more about him, of being daily strengthened in our faith and love and service, and of sharing Christ with others. Jesus calls us by name. He knows us completely. He calls us to come and see for ourselves. And he calls us to bring others that they too may encounter the living God. And in all these things, we are helped. We are helped in this by God's grace, by the Holy Spirit. Isaiah reminded us that God has known us before we were born. The psalmist reminded us that God does hear our cries and that his love and faithfulness will keep us safe forever. And as Paul gives thanks to God for the faith of the Christians at Corinth, he reminds them that they're not lacking together. They are not lacking in any spiritual gift. They're not lacking in anything that they need to be his church. And he assures them of the strength that God will give them to live up to their callings. And so to those here today, now, this morning, who have responded to that call of God in your life, take comfort this morning. Because no matter what the year ahead may bring, our Lord Jesus, verse 8 from um, the epistle, will strengthen you to the end so that you may be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. By him you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Be encouraged in that. He called you before you were born. And to those here this morning who may feel like you're stuck at the bottom of a desolate pit, my prayer for you is that you would hear God's call today. He knows your name. He knows your strengths, your weaknesses, your failures, your heartaches. He knows it all. 
And he profoundly loves you. Call out to him. And you will find, just like when, they, when the disciples follow and they ask Jesus a question, he's already turning to them. He's already calling them. He's already there, ready to help, ready to draw them in. He's there today inviting you to come and see. Come and see, perhaps for the very first time. Come and see, maybe in a new way, all that God has done for you in Christ. Come and see all that he has for you. Come and see the Lamb of God.